Welcome back to another edition of Inside Asia, bringing you conversations with the region's movers, shakers, thinkers, and provocateurs. I'm your host, Steve Stein, and this week we look to Hong Kong. It's been 23 years since the handover of the former British colony to the People's Republic of China. In that time, economic prosperity has grown, but so has political disharmony. The two trends make strange bedfellows, and like any marriage, without nurturing, tensions rise and the relationship suffers. In years past, public protests, sometimes in the millions, have provided Hong Kong residents with the means to make their voices heard. With the exception of pro-democracy marches in December 2005, the first of five promised decades of guaranteed autonomy went relatively well. Hong Kong had its issues like any big city, and China, at least for the most part, behaved. It left Hong Kong to do what Hong Kong does best, make money. Maybe it was the jarring of the global economic crisis in 2008, or repeated failed promises by Beijing to allow universal suffrage, but by 2010, tensions mounted. For nearly every year since then, the people of Hong Kong have taken to the streets, tongue-lashing China for its sometimes subtle and sometimes not-so-subtle infringements on Hong Kong's sovereignty. Security laws have been cause for the largest protests. One year ago, an estimated 2 million people turned out when the Hong Kong legislature, at Beijing's behest, tried to push through a controversial bill allowing criminal extradition to China. The size of the protest, according to some, caught Beijing off guard. For Hong Kongers, it was just the kind of thing you might expect from China, introducing legal vagaries that might later be used to suppress political dissent. Two million Hong Kong Chinese can't be wrong. They've lived on the edge of the world's most powerful communist country, and many are all too familiar with how the mainland bends the law to support its own ends. What does this all mean for Hong Kong's economy and the companies vested in its future? A lot, according to this week's guest, Mark Clifford. Mark is a longtime resident of Hong Kong, a former journalist and editor-in-chief of the South China Morning Post. And for the past 13 years, he served as executive director of the Asia Business Council. Mark shows conviction and passion when speaking about Hong Kong and the role it plays in the region and the world. I asked him to clarify what's at stake with the introduction of a new Beijing-backed security law. Mark Clifford, it's a pleasure to be back online with you. You are in Hong Kong, I am here in Singapore, and we're going to have a conversation about the future of Hong Kong. Thanks so much for joining. Delighted to be talking with you again, Steve. So the issue around the security law, let's just jump right into this. I think a lot of people listening and watching what's going on in Hong Kong are a bit confused. Could you just explain to us what is this security law? And what's changed? And why has China chosen this time to exert power? The security law dates back to the handover when uh, British and the British colonial rule of 156 years ended in 1997 with a wide ranging agreement between the British and the Chinese governments that, among other things, required the new Hong Kong government, uh, which is, of course, is under China, to enact on its own laws that would guard against secession, subversion, treason. This is the so-called Article 23 of our mini constitution, the basic law. And it, uh, it gives us not just the right, but the obligation to put these laws in place. China's frustration is palpable 22 years, more than 22 years after the return of sovereignty to China these laws still have not been enacted. And there's no sign that they're going to be 
The one time the government made a serious attempt to uh, enact national security legislation in late 2002, there was a, a huge popular backlash. And the following summer, about a half a million people came out into the streets to oppose this national, this Article 23 national security legislation. It's a kind of third rail of Hong Kong politics. No one has wanted to touch it since. Uh, fast forward to um, summer 2019, the government tried perhaps in a way to chip away at some of these national security concerns and uh, put in place legislation that would have allowed for the extradition of people from Hong Kong to face the court system in China. That, again, provoked huge public demonstrations. In fact, much, much larger and more sustained than what we saw in 2003. By some estimates, there were 2 million people out on the streets one day in, in mid-June. Uh, that's, that's almost a third of the city's uh, living population uh, of 7.5 million people. Anyway, it's, a, it's an extraordinary number by, by any measure. It's even more extraordinary when one considers that protesters could only draw on the 7.5 million people in Hong Kong. It wasn't as if people in China are free to come across the border and join these protests. So huge popular backlash. Uh, and among other things, demonstrators uh, broadened their demands uh, to call for full universal suffrage, which is also uh, part of the basic law. Universal suffrage, the, uh, the Chinese have promised, is uh, the ultimate aim of the system in, in Hong Kong. There doesn't seem to be much progress on that either. So it's a bit of a stalemate. There's no Article 23, no, no national security legislation. That frustrates the Chinese. No move towards universal suffrage. That frustrates the people of Hong Kong. And one thing led to another. And the long, hot summer of 2019, which really went well into the autumn, uh, saw not just protests, but violent protests on a scale that Hong Kong has never seen. I mean, comparisons were made to the 1967 Cultural Revolution riots, uh, more and bombings. More people died in 1967, but more people took part in a sustained, uh, ongoing way than in 67. So it was uh, effectively a proto-revolutionary situation. I mean, there's something close to an insurrection. It didn't start out like that. It really just started out with the people of Hong Kong wanting the right to elect the mayor. We, we call her the chief executive here. And, and the city council or the legislative council. So it started out with, you know, really the most basic and fundamentally quite, you know, simple rights that, it, you know, people have in most wealthy societies and which were promised under the basic law, this mini constitution. So but, um, one, one thing led to another. And yeah, here we are. So when, when things turned violent or more aggressive, was that a flashpoint for China at that t stage? Did the, the, the Beijing decide, well, maybe they've crossed the line. Perhaps it's gone too far. We were prepared to listen to a bit of public resistance to these ideas, uh, a little pushback, but now we actually have security concerns. Are those legitimate concerns in your view? I can't really tell you what the Chinese leadership, and particularly the only person who really matters, Xi Jinping, really thinks. It's possible that the, the line was actually crossed in late 2014 with the Occupy Central, the umbrella movement, which saw, again, hundreds of thousands of people take over much of uh, downtown Hong Kong, much of the business district for 79 days and, and kept normal, normal business life from going on. Uh, there were some you know, very minority calls for, for independence uh, in mid-2014, uh, but by the end of 2014, the calls for independence, for Hong Kong independence, had grown, had grown quite a bit louder to the point where 
um, in the wake of the umbrella movement, so even five years ago, you had something like 20% of Hong Kong people uh, saying that they supported independence. That may have been the, the red line that, that China just felt was too much. And then uh, this mishandled extradition bill, which morphed into a much broader, uh, almost an uprising against the government and took on very strong anti-mainland Chinese, anti-People's Republic of China characteristics uh, may have been too much. Um, it's, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, we have a guy in power in China who is not really known for his liberalizing tendencies. I mean, we've seen a much tougher attitude on the part of Xi Jinping all around the world, right? We've seen it vis-a-vis Taiwan. We've seen it in the South China Sea vis-a-vis Vietnam in particular. We see it in the standoff uh, with India right now on the border. Uh, we obviously see it in Xinjiang. So I think Hong Kong, uh, I think no matter what happened in Hong Kong, we were going to see a, a tougher line. Were we going to see the National People's Congress come in and say that it was time for Beijing to dictate Hong Kong's national security laws? I don't know. It's a moot point because that's what they're doing. This is a fait accompli, yes? I mean, that they're going to push this through and it's going to be enacted by August, September. Is that correct? Uh, well, what happened um, to to get a little bit granular about this, the National People's Congress is generally held in March. It was put off because of COVID, and so it was held in late May, uh, just before that opened. Uh, so in mid-May, mid to late May, uh, word came out of Beijing that the NPC was going to, uh, to do this by uh, not drafting the legislation itself. And I think this is important. This is all being done behind closed doors where... National People's Congress delegates have uh, given a standing committee the right to draft this legislation. So we don't even know what the law says yet. We don't know if it's going to be done by the end of June or August or September. I do imagine it will be in place before the Legislative Council elections in September. This is the city council I referred to before. Beijing was humiliated uh, with the results of district council elections uh, at the end of last November. I mean, district councils you know, basically the dog catchers, the trash collectors. I mean, it's just like the lowest of the low in terms of any kind of power. But Beijing uh, got, the pro-Beijing people were swept out, swept away. They lost control of 17 of the 18 district councils. And these have access to money, but they're also a way for the pro-communist United Front organizations to, to get the word out and to try to get support for whatever the Beijing line is. And uh, Beijing does not want a repeat of that in September. I mean, they had been telling themselves there was a great silent majority that su- supported law and order, supported Beijing, supported the police, supported the Hong Kong government. And that's not what the Hong Kong voters said when they went to the ballot box. Mm. To, to what degree has this COVID crisis uh, provided cover for Beijing or, or would they have done this anyway? It's a good question. Uh, again, it's a moot point because uh, we've got the COVID crisis, but uh Obviously, COVID acted as a kind of circuit breaker uh, for the demonstrations that uh, went on really until the end of last year. Um, uh, they might or might not have done it anyway. It makes it a lot easier when you have COVID. You can't get more than eight people together. So, for example, there has always been a, a large commemoration in uh, Victoria Park in Causeway Bay on June 4th every year since 1989 to commemorate the, the killings by uh, Chinese security forces of, of protesters in Beijing and around China. This time, for the first time ever, uh, that demonstration was not allowed, or that vigil was not allowed 
on grounds that it would have violated social distancing guidelines. Last year, there were something like 150,000 people there. So to answer your question, whether or not it would have happened, it is COVID-19 is being used to prevent people from uh, having exercising their right to peacefully protest, which again is guaranteed in the basic law in Hong Kong's mini constitution. Mark, is is it the law itself which has the Hong Kong residents so up in arms, or is it that it's a harbinger of more to come, Um, other things that uh, that China may or attempt to do in order to plug perceived security gaps or uh, enforce its rule of law in a way that isn't consistent with the basic law? Given that we haven't seen the law, I can't really understand why people could be upset about the law itself. And that's actually what the pro-Beijing people are saying. Hey, just wait, wait till you see the details. Sure, everything will be fine. Most law-abiding citizens will have nothing to fear. But most people in Hong Kong either came from the mainland or their parents came from the mainland or their grandparents came from the mainland. And sure, Hong Kong has benefited enormously in an economic sense from the rise of the mainland. And after SARS, uh, China and Chinese tourists in particular, Chinese property buyers, Chinese businesses provided a huge amount of help and assistance to a to a, a troubled Hong Kong economy, but you can perhaps have too much of a good thing. And I think in uh, Hong Kong, there's kind of over tourism, the 50 million plus mainland visitors we would get in a typical year until the demonstrations. It's just been too much. Uh, just on a kind of personal standpoint, a job standpoint, people being priced out of apartments. But the really, really, really big issue is people do not ch- trust China. They have family members from China. They've done business in China. All I have to do is read the newspapers here. And every day, one seems to hear about another dissident or another person who's been using WeChat or Weibo who's taken away for what seemed to be pretty uh, mundane sorts of comments that, you know, should just be allowed to be expressed in a free society. And yet people are just at an alarming and seemingly increasing rate disappearing into the into the recesses of uh, the Chinese judicial system. Yeah. That terrifies people here. Yeah. What's at stake from a business perspective? What are companies thinking, both multinationals as well as some of the locals? Well, I think companies are um, holding their breath, crossing their fingers, and perhaps shutting their eyes. I mean, they don't have a lot of choice. I mean, it, it doesn't really pay to go up against the government anywhere, and I think particularly against the Chinese government. I mean, no one wants to mess with President Trump in the United States. I mean, when people who have government and state power behind them want to cause trouble for you, they can. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think businesses, many businesses quietly were supporting the protesters last year when it came to the, and the calls to scrap the extradition bill. They've done business in China. Maybe they don't really feel like being called uh, over the border and being made to stand trial in a country whose court system they don't trust. Um, I think businesses can do business and have done businesses in suboptimal political environments. I mean, look around the world. Very few places really have transparency, rule of law, free press, good government. There are some places that do, of course. Hong Kong was one of those places. I say was because I think with every day, it's uh, getting, that's becoming a more and more questionable proposition. So too early to say. I don't think businesses are fleeing at this point. I think Certainly ordinary people are lining up at banks to open up foreign currency accounts and to be looking at other options. The fact that uh, Boris Johnston has talked about giving a right of abode to 3 million people in Britain, the fact that there have been calls for the U.S. to, to open up the emigration, I think is a source of great comfort. Uh, 
For business itself, they're going to hang on. There's not a better alternative uh, to Hong Kong for many things at this point. It's still the freest, most open, cleanest, least corrupt city in China, but it is becoming more like the rest of China. And I think the fear is, uh, does the border effectively disappear? And uh, it becomes, yeah, like just like Shenzhen with the same, you know, all a lot of great things, but uh, a lot of drawbacks when it comes to the certainty and particularly property rights that, that businesses rely on. Yeah. It seems like there have been some attempts to get Hong Kong-based businesses or the large branded organizations on side. If now Beijing is saying in order for us to legitimize our attempt to, you know, to, to turn the screws on security and other issues, we are going to want to see more vocal participation by uh, Hong Kong-based companies to support these initiatives versus staying on the sideline or even, you know, supporting the protesters. Yeah, I think there's been a sea change in Hong Kong in the last 12 months. And it started, in fact, last uh, last summer when Cathay Pacific was uh, forced to uh, ditch its senior management because it wasn't seen to be politically correct enough. It wasn't keeping its pilots and flight attendants in line, i.e. keeping them out of the protests. I think the politicization of business is potentially one of the longest uh, sort of the long term damage that, that China is doing to itself. Uh, Business is being forced to speak out. It's being forced to take a side. It's clear that uh, this is being done in many cases under duress, and it may even not be what the people believe. Uh, and I think that's uh, a very, very bad sign. It goes back to the kind of 1950s Maoist, to the debate between red and expert. Yeah. The choice was made red, and what you had was a famine that killed somewhere between 25 and 40 million people. Now, I'm not saying that this cafe had to had to sack its CEO that we're going to have a famine killing people. But it's a similar kind of impulse to impose political correctness and political control over businesses that are effectively are trying to stay out of political stuff that doesn't involve them. Well, Mark, I think that's where I was going is is to what degree will companies start to say, you know, um, business is business, but I feel like um, it becomes a little bit testing for me to be able to uh, draw a line in the sand in such a way that I might compromise the integrity of my business, my organization, or my employees, could that in effect uh, preempt or, or create a, mo a movement of, of organizations leaving? I know it's a little bit early to say they haven't seen the law. I get that. But these are the types of signals that as a business, I would suspect would be of concern to uh, individuals running those those corporations. Is it not? They don't always have a choice. If you're Cathay Pacific and you're based in Hong Kong and most of your feeder traffic uh, comes in from the mainland, uh, a snap of the finger by the aviation regulator can be an existential threat to your company. And so I, I don't think there's a choice. If you're HSBC, where over a third of your revenues come from Hong Kong alone, you can't afford to ignore what the guys in Beijing want. So they might not like it, but uh, they don't really have a choice. And if you look at... HSBC, I think they spent a lot of the 1980s and 1990s trying to diversify away from uh, reliance on Hong Kong in particular, and it didn't end up very well. So, you know, it's a, it's, it's a very, very difficult situation. People have businesses to run, and they have a fiduciary duty to their shareholders and to others to keep those businesses going. And if those businesses, and this is what the Chinese are counting on, those businesses are so dependent on China that the Chinese can uh, bend than the executives of those businesses to their will. I think it's a horrible sign to the foreign business community in particular. And I think when 
You look at what the European Chamber and the American Chamber or some of their members in surveys and some of their leaders have, have expressed uh, for multinationals that think China's important, but it's not a, perhaps a make or break uh, market for their company. I think uh, there was already unhappiness about China and this clearly will uh, underscore the, the concern. And of course, it plays into the the hands of uh, people in, in Washington, the United States and in Europe, who would love to see more distance between the West and China. Mm. So I, I think I think it's potentially the most damaging thing that Chinese will do, even though they're just doing it not quite as an afterthought, but just because they they sort of reflexively like people to tremble and obey. Mm. You know, should Hong Kong become less attractive for MNCs, it, in some ways, maybe it becomes more attractive for Chinese companies that fear their business prospects in the United States may be in jeopardy because of the political ex- uh, tensions that exist there. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think the clearest way that uh, you might see that playing out is uh, in listings on the Hong Kong exchange. Mm-hmm. So there's uh, already um, a number of companies which uh, either have a secondary listing in Hong Kong, say Alibaba, which first listed in New York, uh, and now has a secondary listing in Hong Kong, a very large one. And as New York uh, becomes uh, um, a less welcoming place for Chinese companies to list, and there's a lot of controversy over uh, the degree to which uh, U.S. or international investors have insights into audited accounts and, and pro- properly audited accounts in China, there's a push away, I think, from uh, U.S. markets, and Hong Kong's going to be a beneficiary of it. And sure, I mean, compared to the rest of China, I mean, the international capital market in particular in Hong Kong, I think, is going to remain very, very important. Well, as somebody who's lived in Hong Kong as long as you have, Mark, well, how has the atmosphere changed? What does it feel like now compared to 10, 15, even 20 years ago? Just curious from a personal perspective. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, it's become a much more Chinese city, and that's great in many ways. And the fact that it's no longer a colonial city, I think, is uh, is a good thing, because colonialism is, is not a, a natural state of affairs. And Hong Kong was funny, because it had this long colonial twilight when most uh, places like it became independent countries, and China said it wasn't going to allow that. And so Hong Kong basically had an extra 40 years or so after the decolonization of the 1950s. And so it, it developed this very uh, interesting and unique hybrid West-East fusion that makes it one of the most remarkable, one of the greatest cities in the world, to my mind. But what's happened in the last couple of years, and I think particularly the events of the last year, have so fractured the city, fractured families, fractured friendships, fractured workplace relationships that I don't know what kind of healing can take place. And I look around at the story or the stories of of conflicts in places like Northern Ireland, where what started off as pretty small things and in retrospect seem eminently solvable, simply weren't grasped by competent leaders on both sides. And degenerated into really a killing, you know, violent situations that, you know, beyond the, the, the toll and bloodshed and in lives just ripped apart families and destroyed lives and destroyed careers, prospects, university educations for just a generation of people. And I think what worries and saddens me about Hong Kong is I feel there's a, there's a strong likelihood that the city could tip over and go that direction. Um, 
So that makes me extremely sad. Where is the line draw? Is, is it between the youth and the older generation, more conservative? Is it between the business community and perhaps the working group? Um, what, what, what are the areas or lines of demarcation, or are there any? I think the real line is pro-Beijing or not pro-Beijing. And some people would say pro-Hong Kong or pro-Communist Party. And that does tend to have a young versus old, but not completely. There are people out there in their 60s, 70s, 80s we're out there demonstrating with their children, with their grandchildren. Uh, so it has to do with whether or not uh, one wants to, to hitch his or her future to the, the promise of a rejuvenated China under Xi Jinping, or whether one, one wants to preserve as much as possible a, a separate uh, identity for Hong Kong. And the truth or, or the, the best possible scenario would be somewhere in between. Hong Kong prospers when China prospers. And Hong Kong is part of China, and Hong Kong is particularly part of the Pearl River Delta, or what's being called uh, now the Greater Bay Area, which is about 70 million people, of, you know, in, in southern China along the Pearl River Delta that goes includes Hong Kong, Macau, and I believe nine mainland cities up to the provincial capital of Guangzhou, and you know it's one of the most innovative, uh, dynamic areas in the world, and if if <laughs> the politics were a little bit different, and the culture were a little bit different, then Hong Kong would have a unique role to play in one of the world's most interesting places. But I don't know if that's going to come to pass. Mm. Do you suspect as they flesh out the security law that the right to assemble in the future will be curtailed? Well, I think we're already seeing uh, attempts to curtail that. Where it's, it's much, much harder for uh, would-be protesters to get a, a permit, a certificate of no objection from the police. Uh, we saw an arrest of 15 People on all involved in nonviolent protests in late April. I mean, these were people that, you know, were like 81 year old Martin Lee, the war horse democratic, uh, pro democracy lawyer. I mean, you know, people, I mean, how can you imagine a guy like Martin Lee is a threat to society? But I think they are very clearly, they being the, um, the, the party secretary and people around him from Beijing, from the party who are now running Hong Kong are trying to tell people who's in charge. Mm, yeah. Mark, we thank you for taking time out, uh, sharing with us your views. Uh, Hong Kong is such a, such a jewel in this part of the world and an important community. And uh, I think helping our listeners better understand what's going on there uh, is essential. So I thank you for that. Thanks very much, Steve. It's been a pleasure. Always great to talk to you. That was my conversation with Mark Clifford, Executive Director of the Asia Business Council and longtime resident of Hong Kong. Our conversation rekindled for me the level of civic responsibility increasingly felt by its 7.5 million residents. As Mark so eloquently points out, the spate of protests over the last 12 months has as much to do with Hong Kong's future as it does with the nuances of a security law that may or may not have a material impact on the average person's life. These are protests of principle. Give China an inch and it'll take a mile. The basic law, as agreed by the UK and China, granted Hong Kong 50 years of autonomy. In 1997, it seemed too good to be true, and apparently it was. China, perhaps by virtue of its own authoritarian nature, can't seem to contain itself when it comes to imposing its will on its neighbors, whether that's threatening reunification with Taiwan or sinking Vietnamese fishing vessels in disputed waters. Recent months have shown an insidious string of mini-provocations by the rising superpower.
The timing of its geopolitical proddings are curious as well. While the world was consumed with containing COVID-19 and Donald Trump prattled on about America first, China stepped up its cross-border activities. In isolation, nothing they've done ranks as overly onerous, but when viewed as a series of interrelated tactics, it starts to smack of power play. What does big business think of all this? Then again, what can they really do about it? As Mark points out, to do business in China is to establish and preserve a place in Hong Kong. Whereas China may have tried to protect the Hong Kong business community from soiling their reputations by taking sides in the past, that appears to be changing. Increasingly, and starting with Hong Kong flagships like Swire, HSBC, and Jardines, Beijing may start calling on corporations to choose. Being with protesters or against them comes with consequences. According to the Hong Kong Census and Statistics Department, there are an estimated 1,500 foreign companies that have chosen to place their regional headquarters in Hong Kong. The number has been falling in recent years, and in 2018, Singapore replaced Hong Kong as the most favored regional hub for multinationals. That doesn't mean it's game over. Hong Kong's vibrancy is dependent on a highly international and eclectic business and financial community. What might Beijing's dabbling in Hong Kong's protesting mean for the city's future? Or with every MNC that exits, will we see a Chinese company that steps in to take its place? As my former home, maybe I'm just being a bit nostalgic when I say the region needs Hong Kong, if only to show China's other emerging megacities what a great hub really looks like. What's your view? Are Hong Kong's best days behind it? Or will the passion that fuels the call to remain vigilant speak forever to the culture and the will of the people? Connect with us on LinkedIn, Facebook, or Twitter. And if you're not a regular listener, please subscribe to Inside Asia wherever you download and listen to podcasts. There are over 130 episodes to choose from. We cover everything from geopolitics to emerging trends. If you're doing business in Asia, listen to what Inside Asia's guests have to say. You won't find a better business-focused podcast in Asia on Asia. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia.